Hail and well met, Frontier Partisans. The uh, Frontier Partisans podcast is going to be trekking across the, the veld and the rugged escarpments of southern Africa for the next several episodes. And this brief episode is, is really to serve as an introduction and a bit of a trail map for some of the trails that we're going to venture down. I wanted to make a couple of notes right off the top of the podcast. One, I've done my best to learn and execute proper pronunciations of Afrikaans words and native names and the like, and I know that I am going to butcher them sometimes. So bear with me on that. Uh, I am an American and a, uh, a single language American at that. Um, so it's uh, subject to all the faults and foibles thereof. So bear with me and any corrections to my pronunciation are more than welcome. Um, email frontierpartisan at gmail.com. And uh, second, uh, contemporary sources on this material often use terms that we now consider pejorative, racially insensitive, offensive. Rather than trying to avoid this or trying to bury it under a, a coat of varnish, I'm simply going to trust that you all, the, the Frontier Partisan podcast listeners, recognize that context actually matters and that I'm not using these terms gratuitously, that they're being used in their historical context and appropriately. I have been fascinated by the Southern African frontier since, oh, probably since I was a a young teenager and uh, first read the, the writings of Frederick Russell Burnham. And Burnham was an American, uh, a cowboy and a scout and a prospector, whose head was full of, of dreams of Africa, which were fueled by H. Ryder Haggard, the uh, great spinner of adventure yarns like uh, King Solomon's Mines. And that led Burnham in 1893 to Rhodesia and two wars with the Indibeli people, then called the Matabili. And I was struck even even then as a, as a youngster that there were a lot of parallels between the North American frontier, which I'd been interested in since I was I barely could walk, and the Southern African frontier, and just enough difference there to add a little spice. Like the American West, Southern Africa is vast and rugged and spectacularly beautiful, and like the American West, its history in the 19th century especially was driven by mineral strikes, um, gold, and in Africa's case, diamonds. And, you know, you've got your, your hardy homesteaders, your feverish prospectors, bandits, capitalists, and conflicts with native peoples who both attempted to resist and adapt to this alien invasion by a technologically advanced civilization. One of the main differences, of course, was that in North America, the native inhabitants were demographically swamped by the Euro-Americans who uh, colonized the continent. 
And in Africa, that never happened. Um, the, the Dutch settlers and the British settlers um, and others that, uh, that moved into what became South Africa from the 17th century onward never constituted anything close to a majority. They were greatly uh, outnumbered by the, uh, the native peoples there. And that, that was an important uh, distinction and difference in uh, the frontier experiences there and changed the way it played out uh, into our times. Among the key players in this frontier story are the Boers. And the word Boer means simply farmer, um, and they were, um, largely, um, and certainly you know, culturally um, and economically a rural people for most of their history. But when we say Boer, we really mean something more than, than just a farmer. Um, it, it denotes an entire culture, and um, they were one of the great frontier peoples of all time. Their culture was adapted um, through 300 years of really rough and dangerous frontier life. And they remind me a lot of the Scots-Irish in North America, who we talked about in our uh, Kit Carson series. And they were very hardy, self-reliant people, and they, they trekked almost immediately upon arrival in, in South Africa out into the wilderness to make a living with their rifles and to carve homesteads out of this very rugged and forbidding and contested terrain. And like the Scots-Irish, they were sustained and driven by a, a very hard and combative kind of Calvinist religious faith and a strong natural antipathy to any form of, of government authority. Initially, that authority was the Dutch East India Company. Um, Southern Africa was originally a... a a commercial endeavor, and eventually that uh, that came to um, be opposition to the British Empire that uh, would lead to several very significant um, conflicts, including the Great Anglo-Boer War at the turn of the 19th and 20th century. Like the frontier Scots-Irish, they had very little consideration for native rights and very little patience for the people behind the frontier who promoted them. So these descendants of Dutch and French Huguenot refugees were born and bred to the rifle and the saddle, and they produced one of the greatest hunting cultures in frontier partisan history. As Martin Tulp notes in a fantastic article in the March-April 2018 edition of Sports Afield magazine titled the Boer Hunters. Jan van Riebeek and 90 Dutch colonists landed at Table Bay in what is now South Africa on April 6, 1652. Before they could start farming on any scale, the founders of the Cape Colony depended on what the land offered. Game being abundant, all of the Boers, as they were known, became hunters. So, as I mentioned, the original Cape settlement there at the tip of, of uh, the bottom tip of Africa was a commercial venture of the Dutch East India Company. And the early Boer hunters, the Trek Boers, uh, quickly pushed beyond the effective range of company authority. And 
they would be a headache for the company for as long as it operated. And from the 17th into the 20th century, from the Eastern Cape frontier on the um, on north into the Ndebele country that would become Rhodesia and then Zimbabwe, this hardy tribe of Boer hunters, and tribe is kind of the right word for it, I think, um, pursued this, this very nomadic way of life, living off the game that they shot for the pot and pursuing elephant ivory, which was um, essentially like white gold. Mostly they're unknown today. Um, all of the, almost all of the famous hunters of Africa are, um, are Europeans, which is uh, simply because the European hunters, and particularly the British hunters that, that moved into the region, often wrote books about their African hunting adventures, and the Boers were pragmatists, and they did not. As T.V. Bolpin writes in his Narrative History of the Discovery and Founding of Rhodesia, which is titled To the Banks of the Zambezi, the majority of them simply came and went, some not leaving even their names, others creating sufficient a stir to be just remembered in Ndebele traditions, even if they have been forgotten by their fellows. So the early Boer hunters, like Christian Janssen, who was cited in 1659 as being the best elephant hunter in the Cape, these guys had balls like church bell clappers. They were hunting elephants and lions and other dangerous game from horseback with single-shot flintlock muskets, smoothbores. And uh, it's really difficult to even imagine the danger that they were, were putting themselves in. These are, are firearms that, uh, you know, they threw a pretty heavy ball and they hit hard, but only at very close range. Uh, it was difficult to shoot them accurately. It was very difficult to reload from, from horseback. Um, this was one heck of a bold endeavor. Through the 18th century, these hunters wandered the, the backcountry and pushing further and further into the Kosha lands of the Eastern Cape and north into territory that would eventually become the Boer republics of the Transvaal and the Orange Free State in the northern part of what is now South Africa. In the early 18th century, Jacobus Bota traveled with his family in ox carts, and he would set up a, a very substantial camp in a district and hunt elephants there until the population was either shot out or, or ran out. And uh, he grew quite rich on, on shot ivory. Uh, some of these hunting expeditions were huge. They involved whole communities of, of hunters. And to my mind, these operations kind of resembled the, the long hunting enterprises of the Appalachian backcountry in the 18th century, um, individual and family and kin group expeditions. These weren't corporate endeavors like the trapping expeditions in the, the Rocky Mountain fur trade that we have spoken about in uh, our podcasts on Jim Bridger and, and Kit Carson. Some of the hunters, like the North American mountain men, went native and married into to local chiefdoms, and none of those more spectacularly than, than Conrad de Bice. De Bice will be the uh, subject of the next episode of the, the Frontier Parsons podcast, so um, we're not going to follow down his trail 
too much right at the, at the moment. But when we do, um, we'll see that, that boars were caught with the, the Gosha people in a long and bitter struggle in the Eastern Cape um, along a, a frontier that was demarked by the Great Fish River. That was kind of the frontier line that was contested in, in repeated raids and wars. Uh, for all my, my friends out there who are Robert E. Howard fans, uh, you can think of the, the early, um, or the rather the late 18th century and the early 19th century South African frontier as uh, beyond the Fish River. The British got involved in all of this because in 1806 the British Empire took possession of the Cape. This was at the height of the Napoleonic Wars, and the British wanted control of the Cape for strategic reasons, mainly to control the sea routes to the imperial crown jewel of, of India. They really had no interest at all in the interior, which seemed to them to be a savage wasteland peopled by savages, whether they were blacks or, or boers. But uh, as Sir John Seeley famously quipped, we seem, as it were, to have conquered and peopled half the world in a fit of absence of mind. So the British gradually became responsible for this vast and rugged colony, and they tried to impose some level of imperial order on it, which included importing English settlers in 1820 to settle along that uh, eastern Cape frontier. And then they guaranteed equal rights and standing for Khoikhoi people, then called Hottentots, and eventually um, moved to abolish slavery across the whole empire. And this did not go down well. Uh, from the very beginning of the Dutch Cape Colony, it was a slaveholding uh, colony, and the uh, the Boers in, in the interior, as well as Boers in the Cape, um, in, in the coastal regions of the Cape, virtually all of them had Khoikhoi uh, servants and uh, imported black slaves. And uh, starting in 1836, Boer frontiersmen bolted from the Cape in what became known as the Great Trek, seeking to get as far away as possible from British rule. And they established themselves north of the Orange River and in the Transvaal area where families farmed and men hunted and, and raised and raided uh, native peoples for cattle. And there were many severe and bloody conflicts with the, the Zulu and with uh, what they then knew as the, the Matabili people in those areas. I'm going to read a passage from one of my ver very favorite books on uh, South African, Southern African uh, frontier histories uh, titled Diamonds, Gold, and War, The British, the Boers, and the Making of South Africa by Martin Meredith. Despite the lack of enthusiasm for its colonial charge, the British government introduced a series of substantial reforms designed to bring the Cape into line with British practice elsewhere. Though preoccupied principally with minimizing colonial expenditure, it nevertheless felt duty-bound to establish a stronger framework of administration that took greater account of the interests of indigenous populations. 
British missionaries newly arrived at the Cape campaigned vociferously for civil rights for the Khoikhoi, citing examples of their ill-treatment at the hands of Dutch-speaking Trek Boers. In 1828, the Cape authorities promulgated Ordinance 50, making, quote, Hottentots and other free peoples of color equal before the law with whites and removing legal restrictions on their movements. In 1834, slavery in the Cape was abolished in common with the rest of the empire, and some 38,000 slaves were set free, though they were still required to serve four more years of bondage as apprentices. A new court system was installed using English instead of Dutch as the only official language. What the colonial office intended henceforth was to convert the Cape into an English-speaking colony. These changes aroused deep resentment among the colonists, notably among the Boer population in frontier districts who were long accustomed to living according to their own rules, largely beyond the reach of government authorities. Many colonists found the idea that the Khoikhoi and slaves could be placed on an equal footing with white Christians repugnant, quote, contrary to the laws of God and the natural distinction of race and religion, end quote. Frontier Boers had additional grievances. Once used to expanding eastwards at will to meet their demand for land, they were now blocked by the stubborn resistance of the Chikosa beyond the Fish River. The frontier region, moreover, was still plagued by insecurity. At the end of 1834, Kosha warriors invaded the colony, destroying white farms and seizing vast herds of cattle in another attempt to recover land lost in earlier wars. Once more, they were driven back. The British governor in Cape Town, Sir Benjamin Durbin, a veteran of the Napoleonic Wars, castigated them as treacherous and irreclaimable savages and took it upon himself to annex more Kosha land in reprisal, intending to make it available for white settlement. But, to the fury of the colonists, the British government in London, spurred on by missionary activists, repudiated the annexation and blamed white encroachment as the cause of conflict. Determined to cast off British authority, Boer leaders organized the exodus of groups of families across the Orange River border into the high veld beyond, intending to set up their own state and recreate the society of the frontier trek Boers as it was before the coming of the British. So that was how Southern Africa was set up in the middle of the 19th century. The British Empire was continually drawn further and further into wrangling with this colony that they didn't even really want, creating tra treaties to protect native peoples even beyond the colonial borders as the Boers expanded. And for most of the 19th century, it seemed like the cost of all this policing was far greater than any possible reward. The famous British parliamentarian William Gladstone told the House of Commons, The tales of our frontier policy at the Cape, and the losses which that policy has brought upon this country, when they are recounted to those who come after us, will appear all but fabulous. It will appear the height of extravagance that this country should have gone a-hunting, as it were, to the utmost ends of the earth to find means and opportunities of squandering its treasure and the lives of its subjects for no conceivable purpose or policy. England would discover its purpose and policy in southern Africa in the 1870s, when discoveries of vast repositories of diamonds and then gold changed everything. Changed everything for the British, for the Boers, and for 
the native peoples of the region. And our trail will surely lead to that story in due course. So thank you for, uh, for coming to the campfire. We'll be uh, joined by the uh, larger-than-life, literally larger-than-life figure of Conrad DeBeis in the next episode. Um, and we'll, uh, we'll start digging into the uh, conflicts along the eastern Cape frontier, the Fish River frontier, in our next episode. And then, uh, then onward, going to explore a variety of stories. Um, and if you've got anything in particular that you would, would like to see covered in this series, uh, I'm certainly open to ideas. And you can email those to frontierpartisan at gmail.com. If you wish to, uh, to support the Frontier Partisans podcast and the Frontier Partisans blog, you can do so through um, our Patreon page. And I will link to that in the show notes. And uh, look forward to, uh, to more trekking across the, the veld of southern Africa with you all. So we'll see you down the trail. <laughs>